Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and all week long we've been reaching out to you, our listeners, as part of our fall membership campaign. You've no doubt heard it a lot by now, but seriously, seriously, we could not do what we do without you. And I'm not just talking financially. The the people we interview, the stories we share, they all come from the connections we make with you and you with us. And that truly is what it's all about, connecting residents across the D.C. metro region through radio that engages, informs, and, if we're doing our job right, entertains. So, in honor of our humble mission and in honor of all of you, we're devoting today's show to Connections. We'll check out a program linking people in need with food that would otherwise get tossed out. We'll meet individuals trying to reconnect D.C. residents with one of their local rivers. And we'll hear from legendary dancer Maurice Hines, who's teaming up with some very special D.C. talent in a brand new show at Arena Stage. But before we get to all that, there are so many ways we can connect with one another. You know, we can send a note, we can cast a glance, we can reach out and touch someone, or... You ready, boss? In the case of the guy we'll meet next. <laughs> yep. Here we go. We can rap. This is Darius McCall, a.k.a. Prince D laying down tracks for his third hip-hop album with sound engineer Chris Raffetto. This song is called See Me With My Dogs. Prince D moved to D.C. about 10 years ago from his native Alabama. He's a fan of Jay-Z, Kanye West, and the University of Alabama football team. And... You can hear me? Yeah. uh, yeah. Cool, cool. I got a hearing aid on. He's deaf. You want that, like, messed up effect at all? Uh Uh-huh. Do you want that, like, a messed up effect at all? I'm sorry? Listen to this, tell me if you, what you think. Uh. So, I mean, your hearing seems to be pretty good. I mean, if you can still hear some. Well, I'm reading lips right now. But my right ear is uh, I'm profound, and the left ear is uh, severe, which means I can hear a little better than, well, a lot better than uh, the right ear. And as Prince D told me after his recording session, that's why he's been marketing himself as the first deaf rapper. His upcoming album is called First Deaf Rapper, Volume 3. There's other rappers, like deaf rappers, who might have gotten signed to a record deal, but they weren't recording artists. They had somebody rapping for them, and they would sign it. But Prince D, who, by the way, is a graduate of Gallaudet University, does both. When I go on stage, I still want to like at least show that I'm still involved in my culture. Even though 95% of my friends are deaf, but I go on stage, and I wouldn't expect too much of a uh, deaf crowd if they haven't heard about the show. So I go on the mic and I do my thing, but the problem is is that I'm just like any other person. So I said, all right, well, let me do this in sign language, but I can't... And then try to sign and in sign and it just be so complicated. So instead, I rap in a more simple way, easy to follow, but at the same time, I can sign it better and make a, a huger impact. So how is it different performing for a hearing audience versus hearing-impaired audience? You know, for the, the hearing-impaired audience, they do not care about the vocals. I think what they want to see is just a visual art. They, they want to see a lot of movement. It's almost as if it has to be theatrical for them so, so they can understand it. And that's the big difference. But deaf people do need to have, like, heavier bass. 
So that way they can at least, uh, you know, feel like they're hearing it almost. I noticed that there's uh, like other artists, uh, like deaf artists, they would use like TV screens, like projectors or whatever and have the lyrics up. But that's, to me, I feel like a, a distraction because they're like looking at the lyrics and then they're supposed to be looking at the signing. And that's why I'm trying to be very simple now because I don't want to have to rely on you know, the projectors. I just want to just be able to sign it and be very clear because I have like a sign coach and he says he just be really big and just play towards the audience and people will get it. So I want to go back and uh, talk about your history in music. So when did you start doing music? When I was growing up, I liked music that my grandmother was playing, like all the old songs of people singing, but I couldn't understand them. So I kind of distanced myself from them. And then I got on to rap like when I was nine because... My older cousin had a song from Easy E. Like, I mean, these my cousins were like a whole lot older than me, so they were playing like some old stuff. And Easy E started cruising down my streets in my six four. And then when he said that, it was easy to catch. And the beats were banging too. And it's like, oh, I like rap because I can understand it, given my impairment. But I didn't start like getting serious in uh, recording until like maybe after I finished high school. I was in a deaf high school, so. I felt embarrassed to say anything about music to them because I didn't think that was something deaf people could do. But then when I graduated, I just started getting a little more confident. You know, I was out on my own now. It's like I was making my own decisions. When I came to school at Gallaudet and I ended up having, like, summer jobs and to be able to, like, have some money to go to a studio and... I started recording and recording, but the thing is, as I was recording, I was still embarrassed by the work that I had because I couldn't nail what it was. Like, I would hear everybody else on the radio and everyone, like, yeah, but I'm not hot like that. I'm like, something's missing. And then after a while, a hearing person actually was very honest and open about it, and he said, you need to be more clear. You're not enunciating right. You know, you got to have some more clarity in your lyrics, you know. I was like, ah, that's why I was too ashamed to show my stuff to other people. As I got better, I felt really confident and like, I really can do this now. I'm taking standard speech, uh, standard stage speech right now. Put it like this, if I take this hearing aid off right now, give me two, three months without this hearing aid, you'll start, like I got, like I got pudding in my mouth or something, I'm trying to talk, that will come back. So just now, when you were recording with Chris, when he was talking to you, were you hearing him? Were you watching his lips? I mean, he was through the glass. But No, I turned the hearing aid up, up to before the feedback starts to sound out. And that helps with my enunciation, too. I used to rap without them. And so you can hear all the, I won't be able to, all the dip thong, whatever. Dip thongs. Yeah, dip thongs <laughs> or something my teacher used to say. So, so that helps. All right, so you put out your first album, Southern Comfort, in 2005, and then First Deaf Rapper Volume 1 in 2011, and then First Deaf Rapper Volume 2 just this year. First Deaf Rapper Volume 3 is coming up. You said, you know, originally you were you were calling yourself the First Deaf Rapper, but now you've been saying you want to be known more as just a great rapper. Can you talk about that? I just want everybody to understand that I just want uh, to be appreciated for the music. Not because I'm deaf. I mean, it's a story within itself. But Tamika Catchings plays for um, which WNBA team? She's deaf, but nobody treated her like she was. A lot of times people kind of forgot about it. 
but uh, I just want to be treated as an equal. And um, there's so many people that want to do this kind of thing that are hearing impaired, but they think that it cannot be done. They think that the odds are against them. It's none. It's what you make of it. That was Darius McCall, a.k.a. Prince D. His fourth album, The First Deaf Rapper, Volume 3, is due out this winter. For more on Prince D and to watch one of his videos, visit our website, MetroConnection.org. We turn now from connecting over music to connecting over food. In this case, connecting extra food, the stuff that would otherwise get thrown away with hungry people. It's a movement commonly known as food recovery. And in Montgomery County, where food makes up 19% of all waste, officials are creating what they say is the first ever countywide food recovery program. Emily Berman has the story. Every weekday night at 8.30, the all-you-can-eat dining hall closes at the University of Maryland. 10.5. And the food that's left over is packed up by student volunteers. There's cake, pasta, baked chicken, egg rolls, and a lot more, totaling 176 pounds of leftovers. We basically donate to existing 501c3s, homeless shelters, soup kitchens that are already out there in place to redistribute the food from there. Ben Simon is the founder of the Food Recovery Network, which has chapters on 27 college campuses across the country. Simon started the project two years ago here at the University of Maryland. It was towards the end of the day, and we saw really good pizza that looked like it was just about to get thrown away. And so we asked the the dining manager, is this food really just about to get thrown into a trash can? He said yes. When Montgomery County Councilmember Valerie Irvin found out what Simon and the Food Recovery Network had been doing, she saw the potential to take this idea countywide. There's a tale of two Montgomerys. There is the very well-to-do community here in Montgomery County, and then there is a growing number of residents who are living paycheck to paycheck. And a lot of the poverty is hidden. That's the other thing. You don't just see it on the streets, but you know that it's occurring. Irvin presented the issue to the county council, which voted unanimously to bring together all the people who could help solve this problem. From restaurant owners to catering companies, hotel managers, and food bank organizers, the group met consistently over the course of eight months to exchange ideas and come up with a set of recommendations. Jackie Coyle is the chair of the group. She's been running Shepherd's Table, a soup kitchen in Silver Spring, for 10 years. More than three-quarters of the food served at Shepherd's Table is donated from places like Safeway. Giant, um, Whole Foods, Panera Bread. But not every nonprofit gets donations, and not every business knows who to call or how to give away its unused food. So the first step was to create a map of who has extra food and who needs it. For the places with excess, like hotels and restaurants, the group asked them, how can we make it easy for you to donate? We invited a restaurant owner in, and he said, what I need is a phone number. If you give me a phone number that I can call so I know I have 15 pieces that are left over sitting in my building tonight, and someone will come pick it up, that's what I need. Plus, the potential donors needed reassurance that giving away food wouldn't create more headaches down the line. They can donate food and not be afraid of 
being sued with the the Good Samaritan law. They're not going to be held liable. The county has designated $200,000 for food storage and a program coordinator to field calls from would-be donors. The Montgomery County Network would have a lot in common with the D.C. Central Kitchen and similar efforts around the country. But according to everyone involved, a program like this has never been attempted countywide. Jackie Coyle says once the program gets up and running in January, she's hoping others can benefit from donations, just like her organization. That, that's my dream. Like, get the food out there. Don't let anything be wasted. And be a witness to the rest of the country that, that this is possible. Just around the corner, in the kitchen of Shepherd's Table, Keith White is prepping dinner for 150 people. Uh, well, here we have some veggies for this evening. We have um, spinach and green beans to go with. We're doing ham and cheese sandwiches this evening. If there's any food left over that can't be used, it's typically thrown away. But Councilmember Valerie Irvin says she's planning to change that. You know, it's not just about the food. It's about composting instead of throwing food into dumps. It all sort of fits in one big ball. All of these things that we're talking about, you you can't pull one out without dealing with the other thing. Montgomery County tested the waters this summer with a composting pilot program in Tacoma Park, joining the ranks of Howard and Prince George's counties, which are both also working on municipal composting. Making the most efficient use of our resources is the first step, Irvin says, to creating healthier families and stronger community connections. If we're able to really tap this distribution network in a way that can go to scale, there's no telling where we can go with this thing. It could just keep growing. From Damascus to Silver Spring to Poolsville and beyond, I'm Emily Berman. Time for our break now, but when we get back, river rehab on the Anacostia. What we've done is we've completely disconnected people from this river, and they don't come here. There's five and a half million people that live in within 30-some miles of here or whatever. This place should be crazy. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Our theme today is connections. Our next story is about people working to reconnect local residents with a resource they've long been told to avoid, the Anacostia River. Jim Foster is the executive director of the Anacostia Watershed Society. Our environment reporter, Jonathan Wilson, joined him on the water early one morning to look at how far the river has come. Jim Foster steps onto his pontoon boat at Bladensburg Waterfront Park and eases into the middle of the river. It's chilly, and it'll be at least another hour before the morning fog burns away. But we're not the only ones on the water. One high school rowing team glides by, and another is about to leave the dock. A man in a blue parka waves to Foster from some trees on the bank. He's getting ready to do some fishing, and a few egrets and a heron not far downstream have already been hunting the shallows for hours. It isn't exactly bustling, but the truth is, at daybreak, the Anacostia is busier than you might expect. This is a 
you know, not what I think a lot of people think when they hear the Anacostia. They think, you know, don't go there. That river's dirty. And, you know, it's just a, a, a very negative frame of reference about the river. And, you know, somewhat rightfully so. You know, for two generations, we've told people, don't go there. That river's dirty. And there is trash here. Foster apologizes four or five times over the course of the morning, almost as if he sees the Anacostia as his living room, strewn with clutter as guests arrive. Recent rains have made things worse, washing more litter downstream. But the mess is mostly made up of small items, and Foster says that's different than it was in the not-so-distant past. Anacostia Watershed Society has been working out here for coming up on 25 years, and uh, the original stuff was refrigerators, tires. Foster says it's a good sign that large items like those are becoming more rare. It means the actual dumping of trash into the river is mostly a thing of the past. Today what you're seeing are water bottles and soda bottles and styrofoam. It's, it's the detritus of convenient life. This is stuff that is completely manageable at the source. And so you're seeing the mayor just came out with this sustainability plan and part of it is he wants to do a ban on styrofoam. Well, it's the result of seeing stuff like this, the styrofoam floating around in here from people going out to a restaurant, you know, taking, getting takey-outy and eating it in the package, getting away from them. He argues that bottle deposit laws would be another big step in the right direction. They put a value on bottle plastic, forcing manufacturers to pay back people who recycle the bottles, thereby incentivizing bottle collection. Beverage companies bristle at the prospect. In other states that have bottle deposit legislation, they're collecting about 90% of that waste stream. In Maryland here, with recycling, we're only collecting about 20 to 22% of the waste stream. It's a huge difference. About a mile south of the Maryland, D.C. line, Foster swings his pontoon boat into a narrow channel on the eastern side of the river. And suddenly, the waterway opens up into the small lake that is Kenilworth Marsh. The marsh is comprised of 30 acres of wetland, restored to relative health in the early 1990s by the Army Corps of Engineers and the National Park Service. The fog is still with us, but even without it, it would be nearly impossible to tell we're in the middle of an urban capital. The one thing I want to impress upon you is you're in the heart of Washington, D.C. Is this unbelievable? Foster motors the boat back onto the main river, and four Canada geese paddle out of the way before taking wing. He says overpopulation of geese has become a real problem on the Anacostia, since the geese feed on young wetland plants, hampering restoration efforts. Foster points to two isolated circles of vegetation near the banks. They're surrounded by mesh fencing that rises about a foot out of the water. Foster says it's a technique that his organization is using with the help of local high school volunteers. Look how lush the growth is inside the fencing. And it's about six inches deep outside there, right there, and it's just bare mud flat. And if you needed any more proof about how the geese are tearing up the wetland, the emerging wetland plants, you don't need to look any further than those two circles right there. A bigger problem is the fact that raw sewage still flows into the Anacostia whenever heavy rains overtax the local pipe system. It's an issue that Foster hopes will be largely remedied by the Anacostia Water Tunnel, a massive project that broke ground in the spring. Once the uh, district finishes the Anacostia Tunnel, 13 miles long, 100 feet deep, 28 feet in diameter, that's uh, going to store all the overflow from the combined sewers, we're going to see an incredible reduction in, in sewage to the river. 
cleaner water and lush wetlands aren't all that Foster is after. He says a thriving Anacostia River could very well become the central park of the nation's capital. What we've done is we've completely disconnected people from this river, and they don't come here. There's five and a half million people that live in within 30-some miles of here or whatever. This, this place should be crazy. For now, at least, the craziest thing about the Anacostia might be how its beauty, however diminished after years of mistreatment, can still shine through the fog. I'm Jonathan Wilson. You can see photos of Jonathan's boat ride on the Anacostia on our website, metroconnection.org. This next story also takes place on a boat, albeit one far, far from the Anacostia. We'll hear more on On the Coast. Our regular segment in which Brian Russo reports on the latest from the eastern shore of Maryland and coastal Delaware. Over the past year, we've been hearing from Oxford, Maryland residents Jessica and Richard Johnson as they and their daughters have sailed around the world. Their journey led them through the Caribbean, across the Panama Canal, and into the Pacific. Now that they're back in Maryland, they talked with Brian about the connections they made at sea, both with strangers and with each other. Jessica, one of my favorite things about this series was the fact that we got to meet a lot of people through your journey, people from that you know otherwise we would have never heard from on this program. Um, one in particular was the gentleman who was working to save turtles on the island of Bequi. Uh, we, we have a clip here. My name is Orton King. My Beckway nickname is Brother King. I was born in Beckway. Now I'm 74 years. I am at Park Bay in Beckway. Beckway is a part of the Grenadines of St. Vincent in the Caribbean. And I am here as a retired diving fisherman to save the Hawksbill turtle. The Hawksbill turtle was caught for its shell before plastic was invented, and it was caught for many, many years. It is going extinct because of overfishing, and I'm trying my best to try and bring back some by getting babies on the beaches. How did people respond when you stuck a microphone in their face, when you were out traveling the world, and I'm sure uh, you just kind of happened up to somebody and said, hey, I would like to ask you some questions. Were they hesitant or reluctant at all? Um, Fortunately, I had met Brother King 15 years earlier when we were in Beckway another time, and we had helped release 27 hawksbill turtles that he had raised. So we already had a little bit of a relationship, which was really nice because I was able to go back, and it was a nice reunion um, to get to see him again. Other times it it was challenging because we were moving quickly through an area, and I, I did feel like it helped to have a couple of days to sort of cultivate a relationship with someone before I could feel brave enough myself to, to ask them to do an interview. Um, I did find that going to a tourism office was always, was always easy because I think people in tourism office, they're, they're used to having people ask questions. Um, but we really enjoyed the experience because it got us out meeting 
you know, meeting very interesting people. I tried to get the girls involved. Um, I know when we were in Samoa, we interviewed a young man about his tattoos, mm -hmm. and they were just completely um, wrapped, you know, by the conversation with him and asked him almost all the questions. So that was just a really special experience. I know that the girls will remember. So sometimes I had to just, you know, take a deep breath and just plow ahead and go do it. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it was really rewarding in the end. Over the past year, one of the, the biggest things that I heard from listeners who would stop me and say, gosh, I, I caught the latest you know, episode or, or Elsie Diary, and it, it amazes me that all four of them, you know, husband, wife, two kids, are all in a small area on a boat traveling the world together. People would just seem to say, I, I wonder if my family could do that, even for a month, let alone a year. What's it really like to be out there? every day in close quarters with your family? Well, I think there was a bit of settling in for the girls. They, um, of course, missed their friends and um, missed some, miss some of what they did in regular school. But after a few months, we really got into a great routine uh, with homeschooling, with traveling together. And I think overall, it's been a really uh, positive experience for our family. I can see where we've gotten closer to each other and have really enjoyed our time together. That was Jessica Johnson of Oxford, Maryland, talking with Coastal Reporter Brian Russo. If you missed Jessica and Richard's audio postcards from around the world, we have links to a bunch of them on our website, metroconnection.org. All right, we'll head back on land now and over to the D.C. public schools. That's where you'll find a team of dedicated staffers who spend all day connecting, in a way. They're known as the critical response team. And not only do they answer all the calls that come in from parents and members of the public, they also address those callers' concerns. Kavitha Gardoza brings us the story on the critical response team, otherwise known as DCPS Google. Carrie Brandt, Teresa Biagioni, and Sydney Murrow are very busy people. As members of DCPS's critical response team, they answer between 30 and 300 calls a day. That's different from just a few years ago, when Brandt says if you had a question about the school system... You would have potentially gotten a, a never-ending phone ring. The CRT was created in 2007 to be a one-stop shop for parents or anyone with a question or comment about DCPS... So if you call the team at 202-478-5738, you get a real person who can help. Thank you for contacting D.C. Public Schools. This is Carrie. How can I help you? Biagioni, Brandt, and Maru say people call with questions about everything. I just had a baby, and I'm interested in enrolling them in pre-K in four years, and I need to know now what I need to do to get ready for that. That, too, I just moved here. I have five kids in five different grades, and I need them to be in school tomorrow. Oh, geez. The most common questions that we get are related to either student enrollment or school culture. Concerns regarding fighting or bullying. We also get a lot of calls for student records. Transcripts, uh, duplicate diplomas, medical records. There's the guy who needs reassurance that the letter he sent decades ago wasn't the reason his school was closed down this year and the woman who left a 20-minute voicemail about radioactive mice in her apartment. Carrie Brandt says there's also the case of the homecoming queen. Because she's one of my favorites. Uh, she's an alumni of D.C. public schools, 
She was a nominee for homecoming queen in 1982 for a DC public schools high school. And according to this young lady, she was meant to be homecoming queen. She was nominated by her peers. She was elected homecoming queen. And then the night of the homecoming football game, the announcer said her sister's name instead. And so she contacted us 30 years later to claim her trophy. Sometimes this team is able to resolve issues pretty quickly, like the time Sydney Murrow helped a grandmother enroll her grandchild in school again. The grandma calls me every now and then to let me know how her granddaughter's doing, and she's invited me to her house multiple times. But there isn't always a happy ending. Like anyone who works in customer service knows, Teresa Biagioni says the CR team sometimes feels frustrated calls. I've had a young woman once tell me that I should be working at McDonald's. That's what my qualifications <laughs> showed that I was prepared for, and that's obviously not something that anybody is, great, thank you for wanting, you know. Like, but at the same time, that's not something I'm going to let show in the way that I work with her. Carrie Brandt says they keep their voices soft and polite and try to remember parents are worried about their children. That's why they're yelling. Repeating to them what you're hearing from them, I feel like that really kind of calms parents. That's such a typical therapy counseling kind of technique. <laughs> yeah, we're all very zen here at the Critical Response Team. <laughs> all three say they're very proud of the length they go, literally, to help callers. Again, be a Juni. I think that I actually hold the record for longest call ever, and a father called who is trying to think about how to apply for schools for his four-year-old son, had quite a few questions around school choice options, how it all worked, what he can do to get his son ready for preschool and pre-K. Um, I'm a former pre-K teacher, so that conversation was kind of a natural fit for me. So we, we ended up talking for quite a bit of time, um, definitely over an hour. And I haven't heard anybody topping me since. I think but we closed out at an hour and a half. Yeah. My personal best is an hour and like five minutes. So it's about an hour and a half. It's a little bit of a like miniature competition between us. Yeah, Uh, I think you have to take a screenshot of or a shot of your the phone. Yeah, of the duration of the call. And if somebody doubts it, there's jokes that you have to. Yeah, no pics if it didn't happen, or if you call the person and they've been put on hold during that conversation, it's out. It doesn't count. Yeah, it's It's qualified. What's the shortest? Thirty seconds. Yeah. Can you transfer me to Denver High School? Sure. Here you go. Yeah. And then it's on to the next call. DC Public Schools, this is Sydney. How can I help you? I'm Kavita Cardoza. After the break, Maurice Hines is tapping through life with two DC dynamos. To tap like they tap is not easy, it's not something that everybody can do. It's coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we are making connections. Earlier in the show, we met a local hip-hop artist who's connecting with audiences despite a hearing impairment. And we heard from a guy who's helping Washingtonians reconnect with the Anacostia River. But to kick off this part of the show, 
We're going to chat with a man who's connected with a number of superstars throughout his 69 years. Uh, like Lena Horne and Ella Fitzgerald and Judy Garland. Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin. Nat King Cole and Harry Belafonte and Sammy Davis. Not to mention, says dance legend Maurice Hines, his younger brother Gregory, who died of liver cancer 10 years ago at age 57. Maurice helped plan his brother's memorial at New York's Apollo Theater. As far as I'm concerned, Gregory was the greatest tapper I ever saw. And I did a number where I tapped with Gregory with an empty spotlight, which was very emotional at the time because he had recently passed away, and it was really hard for me. But And the audience loved it, and it was very real. It was a real moment. So Heinz has taken that moment and expanded it into an entire show. Maurice Hines is tapping through life, premieres at Arena Stage next month before touring the country. And as Hines explains, using song, dance, and story, he'll take audiences through his entire career, starting at the very beginning when he and his brother were growing up with their mother in New York City. She's the one that used to walk us down Lenox Avenue when we were three and five, and the people used to run out of the stores and the beauty shops and the grocery stores and then the liquor stores to look at us. And she told my father this. And my father said, well, what were they doing? She said, walking. And that was before the word charisma was used a lot. She said, they got something. I don't know what it is, but the people are running out just to look at them. And Heinz says that same something is present in his two Tapping Through Life co-stars. Leo? I'm 18 years old, and I'm from Washington, D.C. And John? I'm 21 years old, from Washington, D.C. Manzari, a.k.a. the Manzari Brothers. You may remember this dynamic duo from Arena Stage's award-winning 2010 production, Duke Ellington's Sophisticated Ladies. Both of them clad in tuxedo pants and vests, Leo's mane of kinky curls exploding from his six-foot-plus frame. The Manzaris had been dancing from infancy, more or less, and were competing on a national level. But that show, directed by Charles Randolph Wright and starring and choreographed by, yes, Maurice Hines, marked the brothers' first big theatrical splash. I recently sat down with Hines and the Manzari brothers at Howard University, where Hines was teaching a jazz hip-hop masterclass. And he says the trio's creative collaboration began when he was teaching another masterclass at Duke Ellington School of the Arts back in 2009. And... It was mostly little girls. And then I did this step, and I saw in the back these curls, Leo's curls pop up. I said, who's back there? There ain't no girls. The guy back there is too tall. So I didn't think anything of it. And then at one point, I didn't see him, and I went back, and he was sitting holding his ankle. So I said, are you okay? Did you hurt yourself? So he, from behind me, he goes, yeah, my brother's okay. I said, oh, they're brothers. And I said to myself, oh, this is exciting. I said, can you guys tap? And John, as you can tell, is full of himself already. So he said, he says, he says to me, yeah, we can tap. I said, well, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll tell you what you do. You come to the Lincoln Theater tomorrow for the auditions, for the dance auditions, and bring your tap shoes. Because I knew I already wanted them because they could do jazz and ballet. So I knew I wanted them for the show. But I, I didn't have the idea of another set of tappers, you know, because it wasn't in our thing, me and Charles Randolph Wright. So they came and they tapped for me and they were sensational. They were sensational. I said, Charles, I know Arena Stage got low money, but I want both of them now. I want both of them. I'm the star of this show. Don't let me use my power. Because <laughs> I will. John said, okay, Bruce, okay, okay. Be calm. Because be <laughs> I got too excited, you know. Be- here's why. Because I had discovered Savion Glover. And when I met Savion, was tiny, I think 11 or whatever he was when, when I first saw him. And I talked to him as a young man. And I realized he didn't want to do anything but tap. So I knew my brother was the right one for him. And Gregory said to me, 
God rest his soul. He said, one day you're going to find the dancers you like. Because I like dancers do everything. I don't like one-dimensional talent. I just, I'm, I'm a snob about it, I have to admit. And I knew already they could do the jazz and the ballet, and then they could tap. And when I told Charles this, I saw my brother smiling at me and said, I told you, Maurice, I told you you'd find them. It took me years. It took me years. But I did. And that's the gift that they have. Besides the charisma, they're talented. They sing. Because... Greg and I were raised in the Sammy Davis school. You have to do everything. You can't just do one thing to have the options. You got to sing, you got to dance, you got to be funny, you got to work the audience. It's a big thing. It's a performer. And the minute I saw them, they have it. It's, it's amazing how the audience responds to them. And they're wonderful in my show. They're wonderful. They're going to be so great. They're making costumes for them. They're going to look so handsome. You know, at least Leo. John. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so if the show is autobiographical about your life, yeah. like, are you guys playing Maurice and Gregory at younger ages? How does that no, work? No, they, they're sort of like an extension. Like, they come in part of the show where after I do this number with Gregory as if he's with me and with an empty spotlight, and I do the first dance Gregory and I have in a soft shoe. And then there's a film of Gregory and I that I'm hoping they can get of Gregory and I tapping in UB on Broadway. And then right after that, I come back on and I say, there's nothing like dancing with your brother. Nothing like dancing about it. And I start tapping, and then he comes out, and then he comes out, and then we see what tap is going to go to. Because they've just seen Gregory and I do a kind of old-style tap. It's exciting, but it's just so dated. And then they come with new stuff, and we see what tap has evolved to. They're the next generation. So let's turn to you guys. When did you get started? How, how young were you when you started dancing, when you realized you could dance? Um, John is two and a half years older than me, but I started when I was two and he started when he was three. Uh, we started dancing then, but we didn't start tapping together or getting really serious into tap until like five years ago, five, six years ago. Ages two and three? Yeah. Some kids are barely walking. Yeah, I know. It's one of those things. I mean, I feel like every parent, at least for little girls, they put their little girl into dance and like test it out. Almost everyone I know danced at some point ballet or something when they were two. So we were put into it, but you know, as you know, time progresses, you get more and more committed to it, and it's just something that we started to as possibly like a hobby, something that wasn't promised to go as far as we did or as we're going, but um, we we progressively got uh, more committed to it. What was it like when you were at that master class and this man, this legend, walks up to you? Um, like Mr. Hines said, my ankle was actually just recovering because I had sprained it at a national competition, like a few months back so I wasn't like fully willing to go to the class in the first place because my ankle like really hurt except my f- best friend's mom contacted my mom sent her an email saying that Mr. Irons was teaching a class so I knew it was important and I knew it would be fun so when we went you know I was in pain but it was worth going to I mean I'm sitting here with you now <laughs> job yeah it was good <laughs> you know what I must say about them when you see them tap you know, it's, it's, it's rhythm, it's, it's close floor work. They really can do everything. They were much more far along than Gregory and I were at their age. When you got it, you got it. And they got it. They got it. Their future is limitless, though. When we go to Hollywood, uh, we're, we're going to do a um, show at the new theater in Beverly Hills, right in the center of the Hollywood homes. All these stars. Angelina Jolie, I hope she's up the street because I, I got to meet her. Uh, <laughs> and so we're going to be there for three weeks. Well, Hollywood's going to go crazy. Disney and all that. They're going to have a series. There's no doubt about it in my mind. I'm going to lose them, but I'm going to be happy to lose them because they're going to have a great big career.
That was the fabulous Maurice Hines and the marvelous Manzari brothers. They'll be appearing in Maurice Hines' is Tapping Through Life at Arena Stage starting on November 15th. For more information and to see video of the Manzari brothers in action, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Give me the old soft shoe, I said, the old soft shoe. A one, a two, a doodly-doodly-doo. Play me that old soft shoe and nothing else will do. That's the dance my darling used to do. Time now to slip off the tap shoes and step on to the yoga mat. Earlier this year, Jacob Fenston brought us a story on the varying availability of yoga in the D.C. region. As he found out, some locals are working to connect more and more Washingtonians with this ancient practice. If you Google Yoga Studio Washington, D.C., the pins drop in clusters across the city's posh neighborhoods. Can you guys in the back come up to the front? But here, east of the Anacostia River, yoga studios are non-existent. So these yogis are gathered in a church, mats laid out on the linoleum tiles. The class, as usual, is packed. Take a deep inhale through the nose and just kind of bring yourself into class. Sarian Lee has been teaching yoga in southeast D.C. since 2005 under the name Anacostia Yogi. Strong inhales. Back then, she says she was the only teacher east of the river, and still, she's one of just a handful holding regular classes here. Releasing exhales. While yoga's popularity has been growing across the country for the past two decades, it's still a relatively narrow slice of the population that practices. Seven in ten yogis have higher ed degrees. Three quarters are white. It's according to recent studies by Yoga Journal. Inhaling new beginnings. But in this yoga class, I am the only white student. It's the first time in my ten years of practicing I've ever been the minority in a yoga class. I have always been in a situation where I've been the minority. Lee says growing up, going to college, going to grad school, she was used to sometimes being the only black woman in the room. So for me, the, the interesting thing wasn't being a minority. It was how I felt in a yoga space. When she started going to yoga classes in northwest D.C., she expected to feel welcomed, warm and fuzzy. But that's not how she felt. I've had some very uncomfortable experiences in yoga studios where I couldn't believe that this was a healing space, a sacred space, but I could feel and sense and even hear comments from people that were, to me, racist. So she started teaching classes in Southeast, where she lived. The message that I'm sending out to people is not about, I'm black, you're black, let's practice yoga. It's about, I understand being discriminated against. I understand someone judging your body. I know what that feels like, so I can help unpeel that. I can help undo it. Part of the yoga disparity is, of course, related to wealth and poverty. More white people, more people in northwest D.C. have more disposable income to spend on things like yoga. But that's just part of the story. Dana Smith runs a studio in Upper Marlboro, where 98% of her students are black. There are very wealthy people here. They just... They don't know how yoga can be relevant, and that's where I come in. She opened the studio back in 2003 because when she tried to get friends and family to go to yoga, they wouldn't do it. A lot of them look at things like the Yoga Journal, and they look at the studios in D.C., and they don't see representation. These days, Smith has a steady business going, and she's looking to expand the studio. But she says she still has to dispel myths people have about yoga. They think that yoga is a religion, that if they are Christian— that they have to lose a part of that in order to practice yoga. And I tell them, no, that's not true. Yoga is a health system. It works with whatever you believe in. Yoga comes from a Sanskrit word that means to unite. 
But that's not always what happens when a yoga studio opens up in a divided neighborhood. I know it looks bad sometimes for us to pop up in a neighborhood that it might be a sign of things changing. Jasmine Chirazi is the founder of Yoga District, which runs four studios in Northwest and one on H Street Northeast. But I'm really hoping that instead it's a symbol of integration, that we can all do this practice. Three of the Yoga District studios opened in neighborhoods that were in transition, but at early stages of that transition. For example, when a studio opened in Bloomingdale in 2009, it was still a rough area where staff would get robbed after class. Now it's a totally different place. We definitely probably were part of that change. I read Craigslist ads for apartments in Bloomingdale where they say... One block from the yoga district studio, one bedroom for $1,800. Chirazi tries to make her studios as inclusive as possible. And initially, she was very idealistic about bringing people together, rich and poor, black and white, through yoga. In Bloomingdale, she tried to get the guys who hung out in front of the corner store to come to class. You know, I was like, come on, guys, come on, come on. You know, it's $10 or less. Like, nobody turned away for lack of funds. Just come, please come. They're like, no, 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 they wouldn't come. Since then, Chirazi's decided that if people won't come to her, she'll go to them, doing yoga outreach and free classes all over the city. Meanwhile, back in Southeast, Sarian Lee is finishing up class. In the front row, Saeed Chestnut is rolling up a baby blue yoga mat. He's been practicing for about two years, and he says... It actually doesn't really matter if the teacher looks like you or who's on the mat next to you or what your friends think. First thing you get is, oh, you just go for the girls and that sort of thing. And I I tell them, you know, really, you once you really get into the class and really get focused, you forget about who's in the room. I'm Jacob Fenston. And now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we'll visit Kent Island, Maryland, and Columbia Heights in Northwest D.C. My name is William Erickson Denny III. My age is 81, and I live in Stevensville, Maryland, which is located on Kent Island. Kent Island is located in the Chesapeake Bay. At the foot of the Bay Bridge, Chesapeake Bay Bridge, it would be... uh, the first English settlement in Maryland, settled by William Claiborne in 1634. The name of the island is actually named by William Claiborne, who settled here, and uh, he actually called it the Isle of Kent because he came from Kent, England. There's actually a lot of history here. Some people love that. Other people are more interested in going swimming at Ocean City or Rehoboth. But you can do the same thing right here on Kent Island. In the wintertime, you have a lot of geese and a lot of uh, Canadian geese, a lot of snow geese, and they stay here all winter and go back when the temperature changes. You're looking at a changing part of nature, and that's what makes it so beautiful because your pictures of Kenan change every hour or every half hour, and uh, to me, that's wonderful. Hello, I'm Richard Duvester, and I live in Columbia Heights. Columbia Heights is located in Northwest Washington, D.C. in the middle of the city. 
the demographic for Columbia Heights would be 10 or 20% Hispanic, 30% African American, the rest Caucasian, but mixed with all kinds of other cultures. Um, it's a pretty diverse population. When I first moved here where the Tivoli was, most of the land around where the Giant is now was all a community garden and it was all fenced off. And the Tivoli was in a state of total disrepair. The first people that opened on the street was Columbia Heights Coffee Shop. And Marty from Columbia Heights Coffee Shop at the time um, was a real pioneer because nobody thought that he would stay in business. And he did, and then he sold the business. And now there's Maple, Meridian Pint, Kangaroo Boxing Club, The Coop, places that people can meet in the neighborhood like Bloom Bars, which has lots of activities for young children. It acts as a conduit to solidify the neighborhood. We heard from Bill Denny in Kent Island and Richard Dubester in Columbia Heights. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can talk about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org. You can also send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And you can find a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far on our website, metroconnection.org. And that is Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Berman, Jonathan Wilson, Brian Russo, Jacob Benston, and Kavitha Cardoza. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Stephen Yenzer. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also, if you missed part of today's show, no worries. You can stream the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can subscribe to our podcast there as well, or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we bring you our annual Haunted DC show. We'll crawl through the catacombs at a local monastery and tour the spooky spots of Georgetown. Plus, we'll learn why one woman's Halloween decorations have inspired a big, bad legal battle. The Haunted Garden is not a danger to the community. It is not a business promotion, and it it does promote community spirit. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.